0: Following, it has
1: to do right. Let me just uh, press got it here. Okay, uh, again, today's sugya is, is a short sugya. It's a three-part sugya, and the sugya has to do with how information was organized in the Mishnayot. The way information was organized in the Mishnayot is a bit counterintuitive, um, and um, if I was just to read it and explain the sugya, it may seem a little um, uh, perplexing. So, what I'd like to do today is I'd like to read to you. Um, a couple of pages from the Golden Doves where he discusses the formulation of the Mishnah, how the Mishnah was formulated. And in in so doing, in in studying um, these two pages, um, it would give us the ability then to turn around, uh, study the sugya and understand the sugya a little more clearly. Um, uh, I say this because from the perspective of Westerners, we don't organize information in the way that the hachamim, um, the tanaim, organize information. So here's the Golden Doves. If you can share the screen, please, um, and uh, I'll begin reading. I apologize. The quality of the um, text is not um, uh, the best, um, but that's what I was able to provide. Um, so let's uh, let's read it. Um, so as, uh, so the question that uh, my father is dealing with in this particular section of the Golden Doves is, how did Rabbanu HaKadosh um, formulate the Mishnah, uh, don't forget that Aben HaKadosh had before him a massive information, absolutely, well, a massive amount of information, and he had a large a variety of ways that he could have taken this huge, massive information and organized it, but he, he chose a very particular way. So let's jump right in and try to address that question. According to, and, and this is based on the um, approach of the Geonim. This is based on the approach of the Ge'onim um, uh, and, and the um, primary source for this is Ge'ret Shadira Gaon. according to Ge'onic tradition, the pivotal question concerning oral law and the formulation of the Mishnah, because originally we didn't have the Mishnayot, what we had was the Torah Shabbat the Torah Shabbat Alpeh was uh, what we received from Moshe Rabbeinu, that's what received, Moshe Rabbeinu received from Han Sinai, the Torah Shabbat um, he taught the Torah Sheba'al Peh to the Jewish people over the course of the 40 years. And for the first time in Jewish history, the Torah was set forth as a text known as the Mishnayot. So what, what was it that concerned Rabbi Rabbeinu HaKadosh in transforming the Torah Sheba'al Peh to the Mishnayot? Uh, by the way, Avi, uh, can you just confirm that the uh, connection is good? Because I see myself jumping a little. Avi? Yeah, the connection
0: is good, Jeff. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Sorry, I was unmuting.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so, so continuing. Um, so, the pivotal question um, was the relationship between the text to the uh, Tom. So, so we have the um, we're going to have the text and the Mishnah. Eventually, the Mishnah would be um, set forth into um, a set formulation, a set linguistic formulation. Until now, there was no set linguistic formulation. I discussed this in um, my introduction to Talmud classes, and there's going to be a certain relationship between the text and the Ta'am. So let me explain to you. So we have Pesukim, and on the Pesukim, we have traditions of Torah Shabbat, which tells us how to understand the Pesukim. Uh, So the Ta'amim of the Pesukim, um, for example, Peri uh, Sadar is um, is an etrog. Ot Ot is the Tefillin. So there is the Pisukim, there is the written text, the Torah and there's the Ta'amim, how the um, how the are understood. Um, so the question is now: we're going to be formulating the Mishnah and sending forth a set text. Which is going to be um, the, it's going to encapsulate the Ta'amim, right? So we need the Ta'amim and we need to encapsulate those Ta'amim in the text that we're now going to be uh, formulating, which is a Mishnah. So prior to the destruction of the temple, there was no uniform authoritative text of the oral law. That's the key to understanding all this is to know there was no. Set linguistic formulation of the Torah Shav meaning everybody can basically transmit the Torah Shav Al in whatever language they thought was the most precise language to express the ta'amim of the pesukim. Right, so I can, you know, if, I have a, if I have a yeshiva and I have talmidim and they're studying with me, I'm free to, you know, teach the laws of tefillin as I wish to teach the laws of tefillin and so on. As long as, of course, as long as I'm adhering to the ta'amim. But how I express the ta'amim is my own, um, you know, is my own judgment. The sages knew the ta'amim of the Torah. So there was no the machloket on what the pisuki meant. right? Because again, we received the Torah from Moshe Rabenu, So we knew what the Torah Shabal is. But each would formulate them according to his disciples in his own words. Again, that was the discretion of the teacher how to encapsulate the ta'amim of the Torah Shabikhtav into whatever um, words I wish to um, express those ta'mim in. And uh, here we go. Prior to the destruction of the temple, just one moment, I'm going to be looking at the footnotes, I want to give you the correct uh, citation for those of you who wish to um, look at it later. Give me a moment. Yeah, so this this is page 22. I'm sorry. This is in Yigedat Shirim but It's in page twenty-two. We get a Shirim the Harkavi edition. Okay. Prior to the destruction of the temple, the ancients had no need for this formulation of the Mishnah, since it is the oral law, and the Tam was not yet expressed in a definite formula, as was the case with the written law. And you, you may recall that I uh, mentioned in my um, uh, that I mentioned in my class. That there was no need to express the Torah Shabbai and its formula because we had a living, thriving judiciary, and the living, thriving judiciary had hachamim that were semuchim pi hachamim, and they were able, they, they, they were allowed, and they had the discretion to express the laws as they saw fit, and there was no um, um, there was no problem with that as long as you have a thriving judiciary, which is to say, a Sanhedrin. Uh, sitting in the Lishkat Gazit in the Beit HaMikdash, then this all works uh, just well. Each and every one would teach them to his disciples as he was narrating to his friend with any words that he chose, right? Again, depending on the language, um, the contemporary usages, right? The particular people speaking to each other. Uh, the Ta'amev, the Torah, were comprehended as if they had been halakha received from Moses at Sinai, And there was no ambiguity, precisely because they were able to use whatever... Um, linguistic formulation they chose to use, there was no ambiguity between teacher and disciple. There was a complete and total understanding of the ta'amim, right? and that's clear. Of course, if I'm speaking to you, let's say there's people here from, uh, from London, maybe, maybe there's other people from other places where they have different dialects. If I speak to you in your dialect, if we share a common language and a common, common vocabulary, then it's really very easy for me to teach you what it is I want to teach you. right? Um, so you see how the flexibility in language allows for the teacher to teach things clearly, and therefore there was no um, doubts as to what the Ta'amim of the Torah were. Um, there were no variations or, or disputes among them, and that's why there were really no machlokot. Uh, between, for example, in the days of Shammai and Hillel, there were very few machlokot. There was originally one machloket, uh, later three machlokot, but that was it. Shammai and Hillel, they, they, were, um, they agreed on almost everything because the ta'amim were clear, and the expression of the ta'amim was, um, each one expresses as they wish, and therefore uh, people understood the law as well. Uh, during that period, that's the end of the quote from the Yedet Shalir continuing now in the text of the Golden Doves. During that period, the most common method of study was a judicial exegesis of scripture. Right? So, um, so they would do derashot, um, midrash halacha. On the pesukim in the Torah, right? I think I mentioned to you in the previous classes that rhetoric was a very important part of rabbinic thinking, right? Um, so that's part of the rhetoric of rabbinic thinking. The, re- the rhetoric of Jewish thinking is to express things in, um, in pesukim, right? You know, till uh, the most recent generations, when my father wanted to rebuke me, he would bring me a pasuk from uh, you know from Michele, you know. Uh, you know, right? This is Shema uh, beni So this is part of the uh, Jewish culture and Jewish tradition always to express ideas through came in the Torah. The object of this method was to show how a particular law was remiza, hinted, suggested in the Torah. Right? Um, of course, this, is, this doesn't have to do with absolute truth. It has to do with um, an approach to text, which is based upon the idea that there is, uh, yeah, um, that there is a Peshat, but then there's also a Midrash Halacha. And, um, and the idea was to see if you can find some sort of subtle, nuanced um, aspect to the Pasuk, which would somehow convey the Ta'am that you wanted to teach to the Talmud. Um, so mm-hmm. Hanunbam brings in that the matter perusha peri eshadav. How do we know that peri eshadav is in itrog? Well, how do we know that peri eshadav is in itrog? How? Well, because we have Masoret from Moshe Rabbeinu. That's a real answer. But nevertheless, we want to try to find a nuanced expression of that in the pasuk. So the Gemara brings a few different uh, various things. For example, peri hadav ba'is mishana leshana. Hadar also means to live. That which lives on the tree from year to year and so on. And there was different. Uh, you know, there were different uh, uh, things. Uh, another, right, again, the Gemara brings different nuances, so here we see that there was this rhetorical approach to the Pesukim, where the Pesukim would be connected with the pre-existing uh, Ta'amim. Since oral law was not yet formulated, it had the status of Pirushe commentaries, explanations, as those that we explained today to our disciples who all studied, but each wrote differently. Right? So we had these perushim, eventually these perushim or some of these perushim got um, um, set forth in uh, the official Midrash Halachah. So we have the Mechilta for, um, uh, for Shemot, the Sifra for Vayikra, the Sifre for Devarim, and we actually have uh, more than that. This does not mean that at this time there was no Mishnah. In fact, there were ancient texts of the Oral Law even before the destruction of the Temple. That's very interesting. So I, I said that the Beinu had a massive uh, amount of information before him, and the reason I say that is not just it's not because the um, it's not because the Torah Shabbat existed, right? You know, the Torah Shabbat Alpe itself was massive, but rather because there was there was already set formulations of the Torah Shabbat Peh. There were already linguistic formulations of the Torah she'be So the Rabbeinu HaKatosh didn't have to, so to speak, invent the wheel from scratch. There were many wheels out there. It was, you know, it was a question of Rabbeinu HaKatosh choosing what his strategy is and which wheels he'd like to choose from. Um, right. In fact, there were ancient texts of the oral law even before the destruction of the temple. However, these texts were not uniform in either language, scope, or methodology. So one Bet Midrash had its own formulation of Hilchot Shabbat. Perhaps another Bet Midrash had its own formulation of Hilchot Shabbat. Perhaps the methodology, or for sure, the methodology used in one midrash was not the same as the methodology used in another midrash So in formulating the Torah Shabbat or whatever halachot it is that they were formulating, they chose different strategies. They chose different linguistic formulations. Um, they had different methodologies. Perhaps the language was different. right? Just, a, just like the Talmud Bavli and the Talmud Yerushalmi, it's, it's a different language. right? So everybody took the approach that they wanted to take. So there was a set linguistic formulation of the Mishnah prior to, um, when I say of the Mishnayot, perhaps I misspoke, Um, there was a set linguistic formulation of the Torah um, Shev'alpeh, and um, prior to Rabbeinu HaKadosh um, formulating the Mishnah. No individual among the ancients ever wrote anything concerning the oral law until the, the end of the days of Judah the Prince. Also, there was no single text at all studied with the same words and language. One moment. OK. OK. Um, they only knew the Ta'ameh, right? So everybody understood exactly the way the laws worked. Um, for example, for el Shabbat, how do the halachot work? There's, there's Ab Melacha, there's Tolada, there's Shevut, right? There's different um, concepts, there's different legal concepts. Everybody knew these legal concepts. And they conformed with each other. As I said, there was uh, a few of any Mahlokot in regards to the legal concepts um, with each other in regard to their understanding. Therefore, the different texts did not imply any actual controversies. Thank you very much. All right, thanks. Uh, Moreover, they knew, I'm just sorry, give me a moment. Moreover, they knew which case was universally agreed upon and which was the majority opinion. There were also, by the way, there um, there were also some mahlukot But even when there were machlokot in the pre-Mishna rabbinic world, um, there were also set machlokot, meaning there were set um, controversies that were known as old controversies Obviously, these are things that we didn't receive from Moshe Rabbeinu because if we received it from Moshe Rabbeinu, there would be no controversy in the first place, but there were new things that came up after Moshe Rabbeinu, which Moshe Rabbeinu didn't teach us. On those things, there were some controversies, and there were controversies on which there was a majority opinion, right? And we knew that halacha is like this, but we recorded the controversy. We recorded both majority and minority opinion. You get it, Chiriaga goes a little more into that, but he says, like the, for example, um, we have the controversies between Abaye and uh, rava in Yeshivat from Bedita—and um, they say all oh, these controversies are very old. Uh, for example, Rabanyohanaed Zakai is said to have been an expert in Avayote Abyeverava. The only problem is that Ravanya Framazzekai lived in the days of the Second Temple, um, and um, <laughs> Ayeverava, or the destruction of the Second Temple. And, uh, and um, Ayeverava lived well well after in Babylonia. How could he have possibly known Habayote Abyeverava? And The answer is, well, this is an example of an ancient tradition.
0: Just one moment, please. Right, So so the answer is, there were
1: ancient traditions involving not just the laws, but certain issues upon which there were machlokot on, because we didn't receive from Moshe Rabenu, but which were voted upon in the Sanidrim. and when they voted upon this in the Sanhedrin, they oftentimes would keep both the majority opinion and the minority opinion, even though the halacha, of course, is like majority, right? So that's what he's referring to here. Uh, all this has a purpose. You will soon see what the reason I'm reading this passage for you, other than the fact that it's fundamental to understanding Mishnah, other than the fact that it's fundamental to understanding the Gemara, it's also important for us to understand the short sugiah that we have before us. So um, please bear with me uh, patiently. Okay. Um, Yeah. However, they did not possess an edited composition in a formulated text, which all recited with the same words and language, right? So there was no set text of the Torah. So because as I said, everybody formulated the Ta'amim, or the, the laws, as they wish to formulate the Ta'amim, the laws. It always, I don't want to say that um, it always surprised. Well, I don't like the word surprises. It doesn't surprise me. But I'm always intrigued by the fact that people, when they read my father's book, they say, how did my father know that the Mishnayot, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the Chidush of the Mishnah was that it was a formulated accepted text of the Mishnah or of the Tarash of and, you know, co- it's, I mean, of course, it's right here and then you get a it Cheri on. it's, okay. Because all the sages were in agreement with each other concerning the Ta'amim and traditions, each would formulate them to his respective disciples in the language and methodology of his choice, right? And by the way, part of speech, of the of Sheet, is encapsulated in the idea of speech, right? So, That means free will, but it it also means the ability to speak, right? So, okay. Some chose a concise, that's a subject for another class, I'm just putting it out there for you to perhaps um, mull upon. Some chose a concise method, so some of the hachamim, the, the Rosh Yeshivah. Some of them, when they were teaching the Talmudim, they would teach the uh, particular halachot in a concise method. Meaning, for them, the most important thing was, or the most important consideration was, density of language. Others chose to teach general principles. Others um, emphasized, no, it's important to have kelalim. You know, we have kelalim in halacha, right? Uh, so whatever the kelalim are, so teach the kelalim and then form, organize the law around these kelalim, these general principles. While other chose, others chose specific cases, others said, no, no, it, rather than teach general principles, just give actual examples and let the law be learned from the examples. So you see different approaches to how to teach and how to organize the Torah Shabbat. There were those who were prolix and included in the treatment of a subject analogies and further analogies and the first analogies, right? I mean, you can see that there's really um, an infinite number, well, a, a very large number of ways Uh, to go about this. Every rabbi would recite the formula that his master had taught him, and then the hachamim would have these set formulations that they learned from their hachamim, they would study these formulations And as you see, each one of these formulations chose a different um, methodology. One would put one subject first and another would put it last, one would be concise and the other wordy. There is no order. The Torah Shabbat Alpek, and you start with the or you can start with the There was no specific order. That's the end of the Yiggeta Chediragon. So that's the answer to the question: where, where did my father get this from? Right from the And I mean, of course, my father he elaborated upon this and he connected this with mother, uh, with uh, structuralism and modern literary techniques. And nevertheless, it's it's here in the Yiggeta Chediragon. I emphasize that because people say my father was influenced by structuralist thinking, by whoever. But a primary to my father and the primary concern of my father was what did the Hakamim say about any particular subject? It's true that he would try to express these ideas in a contemporary fashion that could be apprehended by contemporary people, right? So, um, but the ikar is chiliragaon, not Jack uh, Derida or you know or uh, whoever or Saseer. All right, getting back to the text of the Golden Doves, we have another uh, page to go, and I think this is the more um, important page. Prior to the destruction of the temple, just one moment. Yeah. Prior to the destruction of the temple, there were very few controversies among the rabbis, as they knew that the different formulations which they studied and transmitted did not imply any difference in substance. Well, wow. this is such an important sentence. So you have, you have two baraitoth dealing with the same subject. The two baraitoth have different language, they say, Apparently, one reading one Beraita, and then you read the second Beraita, you would say, Well, um, apparently, there's a dispute between these two Beraita. No, that was actually rarely the case. It was only a dispute as to how to formulate the matter. It wasn't a dispute as to the actual substance of the matter, right? The situation changed radically with the destruction of the temple and later on with the destruction of the academy at Betad. He writes right here, Betar the um, Later on, my father told me the proper pronunciation is Beter, and so I follow the proper, I think when he wrote, um, when he published this, he had to follow whatever standard um, English pronunciation was common. But in in Hebrew, um, it depends. If you're saying the soccer team in Israel, I think they have Betar Yerushalayim or Betar Tel Aviv. I don't know what soccer teams they have there. They have Maccabi and Betar. Um, So, But but, but if you're referring to the yeshiva, then... um, if you're, if you're referring to the yeshiva, the correct pronunciation would not be betar, soccer team betar, yeshiva beter, right? Um, later on, when I was in Israel for many years, I prayed in Moroccan um, synagogue. And then they had this uh, PU team for Tisha uh, Be'av, where they lament the destruction of the city of, um, everybody says betar in Mount Hebrew, right? And then in the in the team, it says beter. I told my son, you see, uh, I told them, um, just like our tradition, we have a tradition. And here you see it, it's right here, black on white. So um, that's nice because we're, of course, we're from my, my, my grandparents or great-grandparents are from Syria. And you see in a Moroccan Siddur, the same pronunciation, I don't think there was any, you know, more, the, the language is different, the pronunciation is different, but they said Biter, so I, I note that. So continuing, scholars were scattered and the students could no longer mature at the feet of their masters hoping to grasp fully the substance of the formulas which they had learned. And here is the famous statement, Here it is in English. When the number of, the, of disciples who did not minister to, follow, learn from their masters, increased sufficiently, taught the rabbis, controversy proliferated in Israel. So what does this mean? So everybody is mystified. By this passage, when when the Tamidim of Shemayn Hillel did not properly um, attend to their uh, to their hachamim, shemush talmid hachamim is considered the highest level of uh, uh, the highest level of um, um, uh, greatest zechut, greatest mesvay, even harder than uh, than Talmud Torah. So they were not properly giving shemush tamid hachamim, and as a result of that. Because they were not giving proper shimush, there was uh, an increase in machloket among the Jewish people. Right. So let's try to understand that. Upon the destruction of the Temple, they went to Beter. Beter was also destroyed, as you know, in the famous um, revolution. The rabbis were scattered in every direction uh, because of the destruction of Beter. Uh, because of the controversies, persecutions, and general confusion prevalent at the time, disciples could not minister sufficiently, and controversies increased. So, first of all, number one, why is it Kam? Um, mm-hmm. The reason Kam mm-hmm. is not because you were bad. You know, people like to say there's Yeridata You know, whether there's Dorot or not, this is not an example of Yeridat right? That's really important. People always say, oh, Yeridata Dorot." there's, you know, they, were, they weren't as great as their teachers, and um, um, because they weren't as great as their teachers, they weren't um, doing the mitzvah of Shemushta and Oyvei and all that, and that's why there was, um, you know, they didn't understand the material. So it's kind of like a, uh, a Musaristic approach. Um, um, that's, that's a common Musaristic approach, that at least I've heard, in explaining this passage, but that's just not, um, that's just not accurate. It would be unfair. To hold these uh, Tamidim to the standards of Shemayni level because um, the Hadrian persecutions were barbaric, they were savage. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think as a matter of uh, just raw data, I think 90 percent of the Jewish people in Judea were exterminated by the Hadrian revolution. So it was a, it was just an utter and complete catastrophe. So just imagine, you know, would we ever, you know, say all oh, these people lived through the Holocaust while well, they let's criticize them, no, rather we would say well, because it was a Holocaust, and who on earth has the time or the ability or the opportunity or the state of mind to think about Shemush Tamidi hachamim? Um, so similarly, in the days of the Hadrian persecutions, there was the, the hachamim were brutalized and, and savagely um, um, murdered and tortured to death, um, and, and, and the Tamidim were just not um, able to provide Shemush Tamid hachamim properly. Right. So, um, right, and so that's why they didn't do shemush That's very important. Now, getting to the second part, um, right. So, what happened is because they didn't do shemush properly, and here's the important thing: they took the disagreements in the linguistic formulations between the different yeshivot. As I said, there was different formulations of the same law. They took those divergences as indications that there are actual substantive disputes between the different and yeshivot. Of course, that isn't the case. There were no substantive disputes, there were just in form- different formulations of the same law. Now, had they been in contact with their teachers, had they been um, in the presence personally attending to their teachers, of course, they would have known this, but they didn't know this because teachers did not have the opportunity to properly teach their students. So the students knew the formulations of the different yeshivot. So the students of bet with the formulations of bet the students of bet with uh, the formulations of bet and so on. But they didn't understand what the text meant properly. So they thought the text, oh, I have a different text than you have from your teacher. We're, we're in disagreement on this, are we not? Yes, we must be disagreeing. So that, that's what happened there. So the principal figure behind Okay, um, I'm seeing, okay, we do have some time. The principal figure be- behind the entire project of redacting the Mishnah was Rabbi Akiva in his school. Rabbi Akiva, of course, was a prominent figure in these days. He was around, in, by the way, Rabbi Akiva was around in the days of the Yeah, he, he was there before it was destroyed. It was, he saw the Horban uh, Cheni. He was a prominent figure in the uh, Hadrian um, persecutions. Of course, he was, uh, he was killed, um, of course, tortured to death. Um, anyway, he was one of the main figures behind creating a set formulation for the Torah Shabal ped which would be recognized by all of the Talmudim. And now you know why. When you have this set formulation, a set linguistic formulation, you don't have the possibility of a divergence in text leading to a divergence in legal conclusions. But rather, you have a unified text and the unified text would be understood as indicating, of course, well, a single conclusion, whatever that conclusion is. But the most important thing first is to start with the unified text. Right? Unified text, I, I, I don't know if that's a correct word, a single set linguistic formulation. I like that more than unified text. By unified, I meant to, I meant to indicate a text that is accepted by all. That, that's, that's what the word unified was meant to convey. As a matter of fact, one finds that the very concept of Mishnah, the methods to accomplish this goal, the style in which such a text must be formulated and the apparatus required for its transmission, all stem from Rabbi Akiva and his disciples. So this was a project started by Rabbi Akiva and uh, and his his prominent among the Samidim was Rabbi Meir. The Seṭam Mishnah of Rabbeinu HaKadosh is in accordance with um, the formulations of Rabbi Meir. The concept of Mishnah in the sense of an official formulation of the oral law accepted by all schools and teachers was first discussed by Revi Akiva's students. To realize the school of Akiva collected, verified, classified and formulated the oral law as it was taught in various schools by different teachers. So he had a tremendous, incredible beki'ut and the um, tremendous beki'ut of Revi Akiva was that he knew all the different formulations of Torah Shebel Peppa and the different yeshivot and he was able to Use these different formulations to begin to create this one formulation which would eventually become the um uh, the Kadosh. Don't forget to uh, sell him in. okay um, to what may <clears throat> and now let's read this quote because um, it, it is an important quote and it is relevant to what we are trying to explain here with your permission. All right. Okay, to what may Rabbi Akiva be likened? To a laborer who took his basket and went forth. When he found wheat, he put some in the basket. When he found barley, he put that in. Spelt, he put that in. Lentils, he put them in. Right? Meaning, um, uh, with the purpose of this mashal, and all the mishalim and the hachamim are. very intelligent mishalim, the purpose of this mashal is to indicate the fact that whereas other people said, oh, this is wheat, that's barley, there's a dispute between us, Right, wheat doesn't belong with barley. So the, the, the genius of Rabbi Akiva was that he was able to integrate the different formulations, wheat representing one yeshiva, barley representing another yeshiva, spelt representing another yeshiva, the genius of Rabbi Akiva was that he was able to include all the yeshiva. In his formulation of the Mishnah, otherwise it would have been rejected potentially, right? I mean, if you're like, if you're from the yeshiva of the uh, Ishmael, and they're only accepting things of the yeshiva of Rabbi B'yismin Yaakov, that would be disunifying. That would be um, uh, discordant. So he was able to unify all the different formulations to, 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 to an extent, right? To an extent, and um, and put them together in the same basket. Upon returning home, he sorted out the wheat by itself, the barley by itself, the beans by themselves, the lentils by themselves. This is how to be acted. And he minted the whole Torah as coins. He was able to take these different things, analyze, and then kind of create a, a new text, which, of course, was the Mishnayot. Coins, that's important. And he minted the whole Torah as coins. Remember that word, the idea of coins, right? So what is a coin? A coin is something that's very easily recognizable as legal tender because you see a particular stamp, the stamp has a shape, you're familiar with it, that's it, you understand? This has a particular value, right? um so in you know so i mean you can use gold you can use silver right but you know you never know when you look at a piece of gold you know what does it really weigh is it pure gold may be these things mixed into it but if i know it's a u.s dollar i see the u.s dollar i know it has a u.s treasury behind it which is printing money like there's no tomorrow and if you live in disney world you believe in the dollar and you believe that i'm sorry i was diverging there let's get back to the uh, it's hanukkah so <laughs> coins must be understood here in the sense of formulations or, to be more precise, linguistic formulation. So this is key to understanding the um, this is key to understanding the Torah Shebe'alpe, the Mishnayot, as it was formulated. The formulation of the Torah She'be into the Mishnayot is based upon these coins. These formulations were precise, and concise, right? So there is always a tendency to use these particular coins, particular linguistic formulations, and always brevities of the essence, and included both general principles and specific cases. Finally, the term Tanna, in the sense of an official reciter and transmitter of the Mishnah, the essential agent of oral tradition appears for the first time among his disciples. So um, it's among um Yaki Samidin, that we have the idea of Tanaim, Tanaim in the sense of those hachamim that knew the official formulations of Alpeh, they were experts in the official formulations, and they had the right and authority to transmit these official formulations. Um, and let me, if you, you can unshare the screen at this point, let me um, now say that in the Mishnah, <clears throat> you have particular linguistic usages of language where a particular um, text is used um, in in one case, it's used in another case, it's used in another case, and that particular, you know, coin, let's call it, is not always um, the most precise way to express the notion, Um, but it, it was a way that would allow for the Mishnah to be consistent internally, easily set forth to memory, because you're always remembering these particular phrases, and therefore, the main goal we can say of Rabbeinu Kadosh was to create this formulation of the Mishnah that one could commit to memory, and because everybody could commit the Mishnayot to memory, it would unify Amisel. everybody would agree this is the Torah Al Alpeh, Kazera Epic Kadesh, here it is, we all recognize this is an official formulation of the Torah Al Alpeh, now that we all recognize that this is a formulation of the Talash of Alpeh, and knowing that there was a desire to create an internal consistency, a linguistic consistency within the Mishnah, I always try to use the same phrases, right? Now the purpose of the Gemara is to unravel the meaning of the Mishnah, because there's the text of the Mishnah, and the text of the Mishnah was agreed upon and committed to memory. And now there is the meaning of the Mishnah, which we're going to unravel. and. I, I think now you understand why the meaning has to be unraveled, because we're choosing linguistic formulations that don't always precisely or are not the best formulations to express the idea that wants to be expressed, but it creates that internal linguistic consistency. Um, I see that it's 4.11, and I'm going to um, just take a quick look at the chat. Um, okay, I hear the soccer team beta is only indirectly in Shiva. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> um, could you share footnote 15 and Golden Doves with us? Let me see if I can do that quickly. And unfortunately, I have to attend to the Hadlakat Nerot Hanukkah, so I'm going to um, finish early. Um, and where, what page was it? It was page 99. a yeah. moment. Yeah. Oh, hopefully, I'll get there in a moment. Okay, so footnote 15: Mabo Lenosa Hamishnah. Page 673. Mavo Lenosa Hamishna, Page 673 by uh, Epstein. Um, so that's that. Um, three minutes. What? Rather than go forward in the text, it's a, it's a very short ya. I think now that I said what I said, you can all understand it more properly, but I will believe that I' teach it next week. But perhaps there are some questions about the material that we read today. No questions about Betari Ushalayim. I really don't follow soccer at all. I know it's a big thing in England. I don't follow it. I don't know anything about it, except that people are running around a field and kicking a ball. That much I do know. But if there's questions other than for soccer, I'd be happy to um, address those questions. It appears that everybody has a clear understanding of the way Tera about works, which is great. And by the way, what we just read, um, it's really beautiful because it really connects us with the world of the Geonim. <laughs> in a very profound way. The idea of how text was formulated is a concern of the ge'onim, but you'll see it's a concern of our right? I mean, um, this, the whole premise of our is why did the Benoel Kadosh, um, just reading the first sentence, nezek, or if you said nezek, what do you have to say, uh, I'm sorry, if you said Havalo, what do you have to say nezek? I mean, it's the same word. So here you see, it's kind of imprecise, or, you know, it, it's not the most um, um, efficient way to convey the idea. Well, there, there's so you're going to see there's a certain rhythm and flow in the text, and the hachamim want that rhythm and flow. Not to say that the words are a mistake, chas v'shalom. not to say that the words are imprecise. I don't like the word imprecise. It is to say that there could have been a more concise way to express these ideas, right? But here you see that they would use extra words even, right? even use an extra word just if it creates the, uh, the particular linguistic flow that we want to create, which is a consistent linguistic flow within the text of the Mishnayot. So that's, that's a basic um, lesson or introduction to this uh, sugyan number two. Great.
0: Thank you so, so much. We don't want to take more of your time. That was fascinating. And I'm sure it sets it up for next week. Um, uh, thank you so much. If, I'm just going to say a few things, but you, you feel free to, to leave if, you, if you're in a rush. Just that we are very excited about the journal. Next edition is, it should be, be there's another coming out this week. Um, just the final, final um, touches on it. And uh, we're very excited about that. And um, I think that's pretty much it. Next, Sin, is it Sunday? Um, oh, this Wednesday. We've got Rav Yosef Zarnigian, sure. Oh, of course, sorry. Chanukah special. Yes, Indeed. absolutely. Rav Yosef Zarnigian, the rabbi from um, Philadelphia. Uh, so, SP. So, just also very looking forward to that and seeing you all there. Hanukkah Sameh, um, Hanukkah Alegre. And we'll see you Wednesday. Have a lovely evening and lovely day. And for those who haven't lit, make sure to light. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody.